Welcome. This is Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Be sure to log on to our website, www.cato.org, for a full archive of our podcast as well as many other audio offerings. Should the Joneses be taxed when their neighbors fail to keep up with them? The most recent issue of Policy Magazine features an essay by Cato Policy Analyst Will Wilkinson on the competition for higher status among human beings. Some scholars have made claims recently that status games impose a form of physical pollution on the losers of the race, and that this behavior is tantamount to a real negative externality that should be taxed and regulated. In his essay, Out of Position, Against the Politics of Relative Standing, Will argues that a market society already takes care of these negative spillover effects. Will explains the concept of positional conflict further in today's podcast. The subtitle of your essay reads, Zero-sum positional conflict is avoidable in a liberal market society. What exactly is zero-sum positional conflict? Well, imagine a race up a ladder. If there can only be one person per rung, then each step up the ladder for one person logically requires a step down for another. A number of thinkers such as Cornell University economist Robert Frank and London School of Economics economist Richard Layard, who's also a member of the House of Lords in England, argue that one person per rung race up a ladder is exactly what the competition for social status is like. You can't make space for an 11th restaurant on a top 10 list, just like two runners can't both come in first in a race. And likewise, exactly half the population has an income above the median and exactly half has an income below. Everybody could get wealthy over time, but the laws of mathematics are ruthless. Somebody's always in the bottom half. If we care about relative income as opposed to absolute income, then it's like we're racing up a ladder. Competition for a higher position is a paradigmatic zero-sum conflict. If there's a winner, there's got to be a loser. The idea of a zero-sum positional conflict is easier to get your head around if you've got the idea of a positional good, which is a notion due to economist Fred Hirsch. Positional goods, like being in the top 10% of your graduating class or something like that, are inherently scarce, and you can't just manufacture more of them like you can manufacture another iPod. Now, capitalism over time tends to produce pretty egalitarian outcomes in terms of people's material possessions. So, for example, a Hyundai Accent, to pick an example of an inexpensive car, sells for about $10,000. A Hyundai Accent is almost identical in terms of its general function as a Mercedes S-Class, which sells for about $85,000. Now, a cheap car and a car that costs over a 1,000 times more are both going to get you to work on time every day in relative comfort. They're going to keep you out of the rain. The heater's going to work. It's going to have a radio. And the difference between those two things is certainly a lot smaller than between walking in a pair of leather shoes and being pulled around in a horse and carriage, which was probably about the parallel distinction 100 years ago. But a Hyundai Accent or a used Honda Civic isn't going to signal high social status simply because it's too easily accessible. Anybody, almost anybody at least, can have one. If everybody could get into Harvard, then almost nobody would want to go. And that's the nature of positional goods in a nutshell. Now, if you think that relative position matters as much or more than absolute wealth, you might not be too impressed by the sort of objective egalitarianism of markets since there's always going to be inequality in positional goods and the social status that they signal. So, and here's the idea, that we'll always be in some kind of zero-sum conflict over status. What are the evolutionary reasons behind this kind of behavior among humans? 
Well, if you look at any kind of primates, monkeys or chimpanzees, they tend to organize themselves into dominance, deference hierarchies is what uh, primatologists call them. And humans are just another kind of primate. And there are good reasons to think that in our original evolutionary context, higher rank individuals would tend to have greater access to good material resources, food, water, things like that, but also, probably more importantly, to the highest quality mates. Now, if you have better food, better mates, you're likely to get more of your genes into future generations, and that's what's going to propagate the same kind of disposition that you had. It's that kind of reasoning that led Robert Frank to argue in his book, Luxury Fever, quote, it would be strange indeed if the relentless forces of natural selection had not honed a human brain that strongly motivated its bearer to seek higher rank. Like I put it in the essay, Mother Nature has made us, like other primates, status-seeking missiles. If people end up feeling bad about themselves as a result of not being able to keep up with those around them, is it reasonable to view this kind of zero-sum competitive behavior as imposing very serious negative externalities on others? Should we perhaps seek a public policy solution to that? Well, yes and no. An externality is an external effect or spillover effect from some kind of activity. Classic examples of negative externalities from economics would be, say, the smoke from a factory that everybody in a town is forced to breathe or the noise from a nearby train track that you know, might keep you up at night if you live nearby it. Now, the seminal work on externalities in the 20th century is Ronald Coase's 1960 paper, The Problem of Social Cost. And what Coase drew attention to is the fact that externalities exist only as an interaction of people's preferences. The sound of the train track is only a problem if it bothers the people who live nearby. If everybody near the track was hard of hearing and couldn't hear it, there wouldn't be a problem. So according to Coase, the economically efficient solution depends on who is what he called the least cost avoider. Now, take a simple example. Suppose I smell really, really, really bad. Now I could take a bath or you could just steer clear. You could just stay out of you know, sniffing distance. What should be done, to put it very roughly, depends on who is the least cost avoider. Now, suppose I'm a racist right? and I hate, let's say, green people. A green family moves next door. Are they harming me? Are they imposing a negative externality on me? Well, this problem is, if it is a problem, is a case primarily of my preferences, of my racism. We don't tend to think that racists ought to be compensated for their irritation at the presence of people that they don't like. What we think is that racists ought to stop being racists. If I come around and see that I'm being very small-minded and that green people aren't so bad after all, there is no problem. Now, externalities from status races, I think, are really a lot like that. If I feel deeply dissatisfied about my Honda Civic because my next-door neighbor just bought a Mercedes S-Class, well, what should we do? Should we put a tax on luxury cars to discourage the status signaling that people do through conspicuous consumption? Or should I just learn to care less about what other people have? If that's an option, then there's a good economic case to be made that I'm the least cost avoider and a very good moral case that I ought to be the one to bear the burden. If I can easily opt out or opt into a different worldview where I don't see it as a very important thing to have the nicest car, it won't bug me so much if somebody has a nicer one. We are status-conscious beings, but the dimension on which we compete for status isn't already settled. To a large degree, it's up to us, and that's crucial. So to bring this all back to the subtitle of your essay, how can a liberal market society help avoid zero-sum positional conflict? Well, one of the main points I make in the essay is that the zero-sumness of status games, the conflict from status games, follows 
only if the dimensions of status competition are fixed. If the only dimension of status was our position in the income distribution, then we would, in fact, be in an intractable conflict. Thankfully, we aren't like that and our world isn't like that. One of the things that makes human beings unique is our capacity for culture. Now, all of our instincts, whether it be eating or pursuing status or pursuing our self-interest or looking for a mate, all of those things are culturally mediated. Everyone eats, but some of us do it with a fork and some of us do it with chopsticks and some of us do it with our hands. And everyone pursues status. But the way we do it is culturally mediated and culturally variable. So a high-status Amish guy and a high-status inner-city gang leader are both seeking and enjoying status, but they're doing it in fundamentally different ways with fundamentally different social consequences. This points to the open-endedness or multidimensionality of status competition. A few years back, I saw a really great documentary called Word Wars about competitive Scrabble. And there was a guy in the movie, Joe Edley, who was a three-time U.S. Scrabble champion. And one of the great things about the movie is that in the world of competitive Scrabble, Joe Edley is a very high-status guy, and he shows it. You know, he's strutting around. He's, you know, world champion. And now, what's really amazing is that there is such a thing as the world of competitive Scrabble in which Joe Edley can be, you know, a high-status guy. Market societies, the kind that create things like Scrabble or football or punk music or whatever, create ever-proliferating dimensions on which to compete for status. Now, while the number of positions on any single status dimension may be fixed, there's no reason why dimensions of status can't be multiplied indefinitely. So it doesn't, in fact, require some violation of the laws of mathematics to produce more high-status positions because it's possible to produce new dimensions of status. Now, new dimensions often open up due to technological innovation, which is something that market societies excel at. It was impossible to be a chart-topping pop star before there were radios, and it was impossible to be the world's best bicyclist. It was impossible to be Lance Armstrong and win the Tour de France before there were bicycles. Liberal market societies not only create new technologies, they also create proliferating forms of association, affiliation, expression, and identity, sometimes even at alarming rates. Each musical genre, each hobby, each committee, each church, each club, each ideology, each lifestyle, they all produce a dimension or a frame of reference for positional competition. So in the essay, environmental purists can compete with one another to conspicuously consume eco-friendly products or conspicuously refuse to consume much at all, while punk rockers duke it out on grounds of anti-establishment authenticity and economics professors knock themselves dead trying to get articles into esoteric journals that no one cares about. So the cultural fragmentation that some critics of commercial culture complain about are precisely what liberate us from unavoidable zero-sum positional conflict. So as I like to say, uh, surfer dudes don't compete with Star Trek geeks for status, but they each have a kind of status of their own. So given the open-endedness of status competition, we aren't necessarily locked into a kind of status race that's going to produce harms to people or that requires some sort of public policy solution. As I conclude in my essay, quote, If we are agreed by the rigors of the rat race, the answer is not the clumsy guidance of a paternal state. The answer is simply to stop being a rat. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.